All right, well, welcome back, everyone. Good morning. Uh, welcome. Uh, we're going to continue in our study of the book of Isaiah. Today we're covering Isaiah chapter 4, which concludes the, first, the book's first major section that we looked at, uh, first long section that we looked at that started back in chapter 2. So in chapters 2 through 4, we've seen uh, a focus on the coming day of the Lord and the contrast between the church's sinful present and its promised glorious future. Uh, last week, we discussed Isaiah chapter 3, which portrayed the judgments on Judah through God removing every kind of stay and support, every kind of support and supply, um, focusing particularly on the removal of those supports of political, spiritual, and economic leadership and the fall of women into marriagelessness with their vain attempts to beautify themselves, leading ultimately to ugliness. So these two different symbolic pictures conveyed how far Jerusalem had fallen uh, into resulting anarchy and chaos that comes from childish selfishness and the single-minded pursuit of worldly treasures to adorn oneself. As we turn to a very short chapter 4 today, and we've already done one verse of it, so we cut it down by a sixth. <laughs> um, uh, I wanted to start by doing something a little different. Um, seven times in chapters two through four, Isaiah has emphasized the day of the Lord and the judgments that will fall upon sinful humanity in the phrase that gets repeated in that day. Um, so, and we haven't really discussed um, what that concept means in that day uh, as a distinct you know, we haven't had a distinct discussion on that. So what I'm going to do is um, I'm going to read aloud uh, those passages which refer to that day uh, to prepare us for this finale uh, in chapter 4 and its description of in that day. So starting in, in chapter 2, verse 12, uh, listen and follow along uh, as I read, and I'll be jumping around a little as we go to each kind of distinct section where in that day, just to give you some context of what Isaiah is talking about. So, but I'll let you know where we're heading to. Uh, so starting our reading of God's word today, Isaiah chapter 2, starting in verse 12. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish and against all the beautiful craft. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away, and the people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they have made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs, from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. 
So now jumping ahead to chapter 3, starting in verse 6. For a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, You have a cloak, you shall be our leader, and this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. In that day he will speak out, saying, I will not be a healer. In my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me leader of the people. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. Uh, Now chapter 3, verse 18. In that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands, and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, and the amulets, the signet rings and nose rings and festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks, the handbags, the mirrors, the linen, the garments, the turbans, and the veils. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. Instead of a belt and a rope, and a rope, and instead of well-set hair, baldness, and instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth, and branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword, and your mighty men in battle, and her gates shall lament and mourn. Empty she shall sit on the ground. And now chapter 4. And seven women will take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. And now our final use of in that day. In that day. The branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem, from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. Let's pray. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, we do give you worship and praise, for truly uh, you alone possess all glory and majesty. And if we were to behold you in your splendor, uh, like Isaiah, we would be undone, for we are a people, uh, we are people of unclean lips, dwelling amidst others of unclean lips. We have Uh, hearts that so often long after the glories of this world uh, that we seek to store up treasures on this earth rather than seek the glorious treasure that you provide. We thank you for the treasure before us, um, this treasure of your eternal word that you spoke uh, long ago through Isaiah, but through which you still, still speak to us now. Um, that you apply it to our hearts, that you prick us just as you pricked people in those days in Jerusalem and Judah. Lord God, uh, we confess that so often um, we uh, thirst and hunger and uh, quest after so many other things, 
um, that we have great longing for the wonderful supper that you have prepared for us this day that we'll celebrate uh, together in a few hours. And truly, it is a wonderful time of fellowship. We ask that you would help us to hunger for this meal that you have before us right now. Uh, Help us to hunger uh, for the joy of a community to study the bread of life, uh, the very words that come from the mouth of God. So um, give us uh, hearts uh, to be understanding and to hear and to receive that which you'll teach us this day. Help us be instructed through your word that you spoke through Isaiah, but it is your word forever and ever. And help us in it to see the glorious future you have secured for us. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so I read um, those uh, seven passages in chapters two through four, which started with the day of the Lord and then had that repeating refrain of in that day. So um, is Isaiah describing different days or does in that day refer to the same day? So the first six, that day seemed pretty bleak. (laughs) But the seventh, this day seems pretty glorious. So is this different days, or is it the same day? Come on, it's an either-or question. Come on, you got 50-50 chance. (laughs) I knew James wouldn't be shy. Oh, okay. How many people think it's different days? Raise your hand. <laughs> I'm not. Uh, I'm not covering what yom means exactly. <laughs> um, maybe, but for now, I mean, let's just think of it. This day of judgment and this day, uh, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. Are those different days? Or are those the same day? So, I mean, to kind of simplify my question, is this day of, you know, opposition, you know, that day in, in chapter 2 where it's against, it's against, it's against, it's against, is that the same as this day in which the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and the honor of the survivors of Israel? Different days, same day. How many different want to go with different days? All right, so we got one, two, anybody else? Three, four. All right, how many people say it's the same day? Oh, same days. All right, so people who say it's a different day, um, why would you say different days? Marg, Jerry, you all raised your hands in the front row. (laughs) Marg raised her hand first, but she's making Jerry give the... uh, Anybody else want to why different days? Yeah, well.
Yeah, this glorious light. And um, just like we saw when we did Revelation, which was great, it was two years ago when we did this passage, um, you know, where uh, in that day some people are fleeing and other people are, you know, crying out how long. You know, they're anxiously expecting it. So sort of think of those two different responses to this glorious presence of God. <laughs> I didn't realize this question was going to get so complicated. <laughs> Okay, so the, the good part is a separate day. So we've got a day of judgment and then a day for glorious, for these, for, yeah, it's a very busy day, uh, for, these, uh, for this remnant. And you're absolutely right. You know, one of the things we want to talk about today is, you know, these words about these people who remain. Um, so, all right, James, you want to lay out your case for why it's the same day? <laughs> yeah. Um, and I'm really glad you phrased it that way. So we we think of these things as polar opposite, and how can they be held together? Um, think of you know, what is, you know, what is the, for us, what is the central moment of redemptive history? Christ, the cross and resurrection, you know, is that, and that's redemption, but that's also judgment, you know, you know, he's, he's on that cross, he is taking the penalty that we deserve, that is the act of judgment, and, you know, the people for whom he died, you know, who are outside of Christ, outside that cross, that, you know, that's judgment. Those are the people that are going to be, yeah, those are the days that are the people who are going to be asking the rocks and the cliffs to fall down on them. So, I mean, again, we, we, we don't realize, I think, sometimes how judgment and redemption are like, um, 
Uh, I used to have a seminary professor. He used to say faith and repentance were like a penny. Like you can't imagine one side without the other. You can't have faith without repentance. You know, the two are stuck together. It's like I have a tails penny, you know, or where's the head? You know, you know just by having <laughs> a penny, it's got two sides. I think of, of judgment and redemption the same way. Um, that the act of God judging humanity is through that act is also the act by which he redeems his people. Yeah, and for us being so divided <laughs> as we are, it's hard for us to think uh, of God having this unified mind, this unified will. Andy, you want to say something? Yeah, in the Exodus. Yeah, I think, again, the Exodus, I think, is the kind of classical biblical paradigm of what you're exactly what you're saying. And, you know, um, salvation for the Jewish nation meant the destruction of the Egyptian people. You know, in order for Israel to be set free, Egypt is cursed. Yes. Oh, sorry. <laughs> what happens when you trust your children to do things of course I didn't tell them to do it so <laughs> it's a leadership problem <laughs> but uh, as any true leader I blame my subordinates Rob you had your hand up Yeah, and as we look at this um, passage and sort of, and I, I do want to say, um, I am like Jerry in the, the multiple, like in what James said, you know, that this both happened in time in the nation of Israel, like they literally experienced the kind of uh, destruction of exile and all these kinds of judgments befell them in time. But um, I think that's figurative of that, that day of judgment, and that's certainly how the New Testament um, uses it. I mean, again, uh, I, I'm, you know, it's why we have the whole Bible, you know, I keep going, I'm reading Isaiah, and I keep thinking of Revelation. When I was reading Revelation, I kept thinking of Isaiah. So, you know, maybe it's a natural that I, I wanted to do this book after having done Revelation, but it's the, the New Testament. I mean, you can't understand John's vision without seeing how Isaiah and the other prophets 
talk about that day. I mean, again, just, you know, as we've seen the literally, you know, images, pictures coming out of Isaiah that, that John deploys in Revelation. Yeah, and the, um, you know, in reading Joshua, I mean, uh, I remember um, I had the TA in Old Testament class at Duke, and students hated when we got to Joshua. They just could not understand, you know, why these poor Canaanites are getting eliminated totally, every man, woman, child, animals. It just seems so wasteful for them. But it, when you understand it from this, you know, redemptive history depiction, that it is, you know, that the salvation for God's people is destruction for those outside of Christ. say well I mean again as Victor said God's in control of everything um, so I, I'm not going to um, to try to delve into God's providence what his intentions were there but you know I, sometimes with students I'll sometimes talk about you know um, the good for the Jewish people that came out of the Holocaust you know they got Israel you know again to sort of they got restored to their native land would that have happened had they not have just had this, you know, people have argued that, you know, the push for Israel was supported by this, you know, horrific, and again, I, I don't want to get into what God's, I don't know what God's plan was. Um, I'm an historian, but I, I don't have God's eyes perspective on things, so I'm always reticent to say, well, that's God clearly judging these people, where it could be, that's just the means through which God brought them you know, into their promised land. I mean, we could look at the wilderness, you know, 40 years Israel spent in the wilderness where hundreds of thousands of people are literally killed off because <laughs> they're, but, you know, it's through that act. So is the wilderness judgment or is it redemption or is it, you know, again, more complex than that? You know, we want to simplify it and sort of, we want to know, well, that what's God doing here? Whereas, you know, as, as Victor said, you know, God is, uh, much better chess player than we'll ever be. <laughs> you know, he has a unified will, and we have a hard time putting these two things that we hold at dialectical opposite ends, whereas for him, they're part of that one unified will. Uh, Jane. Yeah.
Yeah, like we saw last week with that, that anarchy, you know, that, you know, <laughs> it's complete lawlessness. It's God's restraining grace that keeps us from doing this to each other. And, you know, I, um, I was doing King Philip tour this past week in a class, and maybe that was the first concentration camp, you know, um, as all the praying Indians in New England. So not the ones that war against, the praying Indians, the ones that are supposed to be good, get herded up and sent out to Deer Island because they're perceived they could be a threat. So we're going to take all the Indians that have become Christian, move them to these horrible conditions on Deer Island where they all die off. So we can be blind to the Holocaust that our sin has led our nation to participate in. Yeah, Liz. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, especially, um, you know, to bring out there the sinfulness you know, of us and the way that we can use scriptures, not for their true intent. Yeah, Victor. Yeah, and to have the and to have the comfort that comes amidst those afflictions by knowing. Um, again, I, uh, it's it's funny how things I'm studying during the week sort of sort of filter in what I'm studying for Sunday. But we were reading uh, um, Mary Rowlandson, who was this Puritan woman from Lancaster, who was taken captive um, uh, during King Philip's War, and um, you know. And the title of her book was The Goodness and Sovereignty of God. You know, that's her story of captivity is how God was so good and sustained her. And the previous week we had read Thomas Shepard, who was the, um, found, or not the founding pastor, but um, a very early pastor at, at uh, Cambridge, the church in Cambridge. And, um, and in his journal, it was all this introspection and this worry, he's fearful and you know, doesn't have the same kind of confidence. And so they were like, you know, is this a different Puritanism? Is it the same Puritanism? Or is it Puritanism being expressed? Thomas Shepard, his circumstances were fine. 
you know, he's living in Cambridge. He's got a house. He's got a congregation. There is no warfare. You know, the colony's growing, succeeding. And Hutchinson was a little bit of a pain. But, you know, that passed. They started Harvard. You know, he's living in the good times. And so, you know, he's worried. <laughs> She's living in affliction. And her expression is trust. You know, that, man, you know. And she's got all these things like... Um, you know, these little stabs against the English, like the natives could cross the river. Why could the English army not cross the river? <laughs> we were right there. <laughs> they could have come save me. But she talks about clearly God didn't want me to be saved at that moment. You know, she can look at it, you know, and, and understand it with that, that, that faith that, you know, I don't, uh, you know, these things are horrible that are happening to me, but, you know, they're, they're reminding me of all the blessings I took for granted. You know, she talks about all the Sabbaths, you know, that she neglected. And now when she's in a place she can't celebrate Sabbath, boy, she's, she's missing church then. Um, you know, sort of it's the way the afflictions uh, use, uh, you, God uses those afflictions to strengthen that trust in him. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I try to be sneaky. <laughs> All right. Um, well, anyway, uh, back to the day of the Lord. Um, one thing that, you know, whether we think it's different or, or the same, you know, it's two separate acts or, you know, my image of two sides of one coin. It is connecting directly what we're getting in this chapter with what's preceding. So I think we do need to think about um, the connections between chapter four, verses two through six. And, you know, all the things that took place prior. Um, and uh, I, I loved how um, uh, one commentator talked about how, you know, the kind of surprise, you know, to read it with that surprise when you get to 4-2. We've been led to this point by the momentum of the coming day of the Lord, its existence, its effects, its affliction. And now, once again, the same word the mind recoils in dread. But contrary to all expectation, there follows a message about glory and survival, holiness and life, cleansing, new creation and divine indwelling, and all in the open shelter of God's glory. So, um, so besides in that day, what are some other things that uh, con connect verses two through six to the preceding uh, chapter, especially to sort of think what we talked about chapter three last week. What are some of the things or elements that, that in, they might be contrasting to what we saw last week, but again, those kinds of specific contrast uh, from what we, are there words, images, pictures that we saw last week that we see contrasted in chapter four? Yeah, this, um, this explicit, uh, uh, language of garments, and we had that, you know, lengthy description that I read again this morning of all these kinds of self-adornment, and now these people are being, rather than, you know, creating their own garments of beauty, they're being clothed by God's garments of beauty. So, yeah, this, this description of, of uh, beauty that's uh, self-created, self-pursued versus God's perfect beauty that is, is, is clothing his redeemed humanity. Yeah, Mark. 
yeah, this daughters of Zion, um, you know, back in chapter 3, uh, verse 16, the Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet, therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. But now, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Um, so, you know, we've got this, this picture of these daughters of Zion who are in their pursuit uh, of, of, of beautiful ornament. And that's really... Um, blood-stained, which is, is demonstrating their own guilt. And here, God's taking daughters of Zion, and he's cleansing them perfectly. Yeah, and um, another, um, the, another thing that emphasizes leadership that we might not immediately get um, is the branch of the Lord. Um, that, you know, the branch, to sort of think the same way we use family tree, um, the branch of the Lord is the branch of the house of David. You know, that um, it's, it's used in the prophets uh, frequently as this idiom for describing David's lineage and you know, even though that lineage has been cut to a stump, you know, God is raising up this branch. You know, it's, a, it's an image of the messianic leadership. Um, that contrast, all that simple, selfish, self-serving leadership that we've, we've seen in the last couple of chapters. Good. Other? Here. Yeah, it's this Exodus imagery. Um, and I want to, good grief, there's so many things I want to come back to in 15 minutes. But, <laughs> um, but let's work through some of these uh, in a little more depth. So, um, so what or who is the branch of the Lord? And I've already sort of given some of the answer. But, um, you know, what is this image? What do we think of when we think of this image? Um, in that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. Yeah, this messianic prophecy. Let me give you um, a couple of other examples. Um, uh, Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Um, what a great passage. 
Zechariah 6, 12 and 13. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be them, between them both. Um, so it's this image the prophets repeatedly use to, to, again, as Scott said, contrast the current state of leadership with what real, uh, true leadership will be. Um, uh, and it's this idea, um, sometimes you'll see it translated shoot, you know, um, which gives that image, again, it's kind of that, uh, um, you know, when you've seen a, a big, enormous tree that's been cut down, but out of that stump, you know, you see that shoot coming back. So sort of you think the lineage is cut off and dead, but out of it is going to come uh, the one that, that will restore uh, Israel to its glory. Yeah, um, so the reason, uh, I guess the reason I'm taking it to be messianic is that's what um, Jewish commentators tell me to do. <laughs> um, but I think it's the branch of the Lord, because it's the Lord's branch, shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the Lamb shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. So because it's the, that, that genitive there, there, it's the pride of, um, I, I take it, you know, um, it's not the pride of themselves, you know, so I take it to be an object outside of them. Um, that's the way I'm, I'm reading it. That's, so that's one of the reasons I, it's something else that is, they're taking pride in this, that the branch of the Lord has been established. Yeah, Chris. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so this is what the uh, verse Chris is talking about, or verses. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, he, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So again, to sort of think of, you know, part of the problem that we've seen in Israel so far, you know, one of the things we've identified, one of their sins is, how they're dealing with the poor, you know, that they're committing injustices against the poor. They're, you know, taking up the cause of the wealthy and power, you know, the image there. He's not going to judge by appearance this branch. Um, he's not going to look and say, hmm, which of these two defendants 
can give me more benefit. That's who I'm going to side with. No, he's going to judge with righteousness and justice, which is absent in this land. Um, the judges are ruling for self-serving purposes, looking for their own gain, and this branch is going to establish true justice in the land. Yeah, Mike, and then I'll come to you. Uh, Kirk, you had your hand. are grafted into him, to begin right. to use that same, uh, uh, you know, vegetative language. <laughs> so, so I think the question becomes a similar answer to what we started with. I mean, there's a question that comes up and answer it, but yes. Right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. George. Yeah, to sort of it, there's explaining the mechanism for how this cleansing is going to take place. But for here to emphasize, in this glorious coming, there will be cleansing. Um, and notice that the daughters of Zion, um, you know, it's not that the, this remnant uh, 
was already pure and holy. No, he's washing them of filth. <laughs> and the word filth there is often translated vomit. Um, so, you know, sort of uh, if you've ever been covered in vomit. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, you know how kind of completely gross and nasty that is. Um, but it's sort of a, that's the, the state these daughters of Zion are in. And then he cleanses them. It's uh, you know, through this judgment uh, um, or spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning that they are made holy, just like we're going to see uh, in two chapters, you know, where that coal comes from the altar, that burning coal comes from the altar and, and, and it's touched to Isaiah's lips. And now, see, I've made your lips holy. Um, all right, so we got five minutes. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and the, the expectancy, to, the longing for this day. And again, sort of, you know, our section started back in chapter 2 with this, you know, remember that beautiful picture of, you know, all the nations coming to the, you know, flowing uphill to the mountain of Zion in perfect peace. And, you know, the uh, swords will be beaten into plowshares. You know, that, that picture of, you know, of... Um, you know, we could see how we would long for that kind of perfect peace that God brings. And we sort of see it here in this, you know, the emphasis on God's presence. So um, Rob alluded to um, how, uh, in verse 5, how this, uh, over her assemblies, a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night, for over all the glory there will be a canopy. Um, so we can see, you know, kind of, all right, Exodus. <laughs> um, maybe we might also see, okay, temple presence. But how is this glorious presence here different from what Israel experienced in the Exodus or that glory filling the Holy of Holies in the temple? What's different about the glory of that day? Yeah, it's a shelter. Um, that, that canopy, um, and, uh, um, you know, I, I, I look at the Hebrew, and maybe I'll remember every fifth word or something, but I do remember the word for canopy. It's huffa. Where do we hear about huffas? Weddings. If you've ever been to a Jewish wedding, the Jewish wedding is performed under a huffa. I don't have the guttural. It should be more of a um, I just, I never have that spit back there. Um, but, it, and that's, it's, you know, it's, it's a canopy, but it's explicitly the canopy that's used in the Jewish marriage ceremony, um, and it's used that way in other places in the Old Testament. So it's a shelter, but it's a shelter that's used to bring uh, bride and groom together. So, I mean, I think that's a really, um, you know, striking thing to sort of think about, you know. Um, the, the marriage that, that these people are coming together and they're going to establish their own house, you know, that their own, you know, their own covenant. It's some people have, have thought, 
maybe it was the original co co coverings for the marriage bed where the marriage is consummated. So some people sort of, it's that kind of like, think of a four poster bed with a canopy. That's that kind of image. Um, other people point to the fact that it's, it's that these two people are now forming their own household under God. Um, but, you know, the idea, it, it's on the consummation of that relationship um, as part of the, the image. So to sort of think of this covering that God's providing um, being tied to, and again, I think it's really striking to sort of think of that, you know, the first verse of chapter four, where you have, you know, you know, the, the image of um, because of this exile and judgment, you have women searching after a husband. You, be my husband. You know, you don't have to provide for me. Just give me a, a name. You know, that desperation. And now, you know, at the end of the chapter, he's flipping it with a, you know, a, a marriage analogy with this glorious presence of God. Yeah, Andy. Yeah, to think of the, in the Exodus, it's that, you know, it's the thing that's, you know, um, you know, they, they build their camp around the tabernacle, so it's there, but it's, you know, it's kind of separate from them. Or the temple, you know, that glorious presence, it's there, but it's, you know, it's within the Holy of Holies. Now it's the covering, you know, it's over all the Mount of Zion, it's this canopy, um, and to sort of think, again, this, this idea that um, it's the Exodus language, but what's different is what was restricted to just kind of a, something they couldn't draw near, is now it exists as a covering for them, a shelter for, for them. Uh, this image that he uses of a booth at the end, um, you know, it's this protective canopy. Yeah, and the fruit of the land that's bounteous in, in verse 2. You know, you know, it's sort of, they're enjoying all the fruits of God's presence. You know, it's, it's not that we're arrived, you know, we, yeah, this image, we haven't arrived yet. And this is the moment, you know, that, to have that glory as a covering. I mean, again, to sort of think of, um, I was thinking a lot of it in terms of, you know, the way God's glorious presence is described in the temple. And, um, you know, to sort of think at that, you know, Christ's death, that, that curtain that separates the holy of the holies is torn in two. You know, it's sort of the thing that sort of kept us from God's presence, sin, has been removed. And, and you know, and we see that removal here with this purging, this cleansing. And now we can exist in this beautiful, glorious presence of God. And again, to think of the contrast, you know, that last chapter ended with all these you know, tinkling, ornamental things, you know, all these, you know, these different uh, things that people were, you know, longing for in the quest for beauty, and now they get to experience what true beauty is, you know, not these material things that fade or can get dented, you know, the beautiful coiffed hair can be shaved bald, um, you know, the, the beautiful clothes can be stripped naked, um, the perfect uh, face can be scarred. 
you know, all those things are material and fleeting, but here is beauty, here is glory that lasts. Um, this is what, um, this is what true beauty really looks like. All right, well, we've hit our time, so let me uh, close this in prayer. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and again, it's amazing to see these images come up again and again in the prophets. In the day of the Lord, I've, I literally had like my list of <laughs> 20 times that shows up in the prophets. Um, um, but yeah, it, over and over, it's this picture of it's both judgment, but also blessing. Um, it is... Uh, the cursing that fall upon sin, but it's the cleansing for God's people. Um, and to sort of, again, to sort of think of the, you know, that God, you know, works uh, judgment, but through that judgment, he also has brought uh, cleansing for us through the death of his son, who bore the curse that we deserve, and who through his blood has uh, washed us white, even though our sins were as scarlet. Uh, so let me uh, close this in prayer. Almighty God, help us to long for your glorious presence. We still um, tremble at the thought of it now because we are so conscious of our sinfulness, um, both individually and collectively. Um, but you have shown us the way that it's made it possible for us who should be cast out, who should be fleeing your glorious presence, to draw near under that perfect canopy that uh, through the cleansing that Jesus Christ brings. Um, and as George said, uh, by his, his uh, wounds, we are healed. Uh, we can uh, experience uh, your perfect beauty and your glory covering us and that we, uh, as your church, can be wed to our perfect bridegroom Christ and that you have prepared us for that day. And it's interesting that so often in the New Testament, uh, the Christ's coming and the uh, celebration of it is described as a wedding feast. And here we see those elements of a perfect uh, union between God and his people. Uh, we ask that you would use that understanding to help us um, proclaim what is true and what is lasting, what is really beautiful and what is really glorious. Uh, help us to continue to experience that even as we come together as the body of Christ to give you the worship that you call us to give, um, the awe uh, that we have at coming together in your presence and to know that you are here among us. We ask it through the healing and cleansing name of Jesus Christ, by the power of your spirit. Amen.